0: Amen. If the Lord's been good to you, why don't you give him praise this morning? He's worthy of our praise. Amen. So, Fathers, we come to your word as we're reminded of your goodness in giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We did not deserve any good thing that you've given to us. There's nothing that we could have done to earn or merit your favor. But because you are good, because you are gracious, because you are merciful, you saw us when we were dead in our sins, when we were lifeless, God, when we could do nothing for ourselves, you saw us and you poured out your mercy on us. In your goodness, you pursued us. And we cling to the promise of your word, that even in our darkest moments, even when we can't see To the other side, that everything the enemy means for evil, you turn for our good. You work all things together for the good of those who love you. We rest in this promise today. So, Fathers, we open your word. We ask that you would show us your son, Jesus, once again. Help us to hear your voice. Speak to us today, Father, through your word, what you would have us hear. Help us to be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock of hearing and doing your word. Don't allow us to be those who hear without actually hearing and who see without really seeing. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to know your word today. Father, speak to us today a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, hopefully you found the seat. and a little full in here this morning, so thanks with your flexibility there. But uh, good morning. Glad to have you with us today. If you're our guest, uh, my name is Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor, and we're honored to have you uh, worshiping with us this morning. <clears throat> and if you're not there already, I'm going to invite you to turn with me your Bible. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, one more time in Matthew chapter 7 this week, looking at verses 24 through 29. And again, if you are first-time guests, you are coming in today on the very last Sunday of something that we've been doing for the last several months, Um, Going back to last summer, we've been walking verse by verse through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we're bringing that time to a close together this morning, um, looking at verses 24 and 29. I just uh, hope and pray that our six months here have been profitable for you, and uh, I just continue to pray the Lord will use these words and shape us for the days ahead. Um, Our church family's primary affiliation is with the Acts 29 Network, and the Lord in his providence Friday before last. I was up in Greenville with a couple of other pastors within this network, and we were up in Greenville assessing um, a pastor and his church who were interested in joining the network. And so we traveled together as a group to uh, assess this pastor and his elder team on their doctrine, their theology, just to see, are we aligned together? Can we lock arms together for the sake of the kingdom to advance the gospel and plant churches together? And uh, during this process, we also interviewed the elder team. And so uh, we were meeting with his elders in uh, the the afternoon. There and one of the lay elders of this guy's church was was one of the most fascinating pa- fascinating people I've ever met in my life. Um, younger guy, mid thirties, is about my age, but way smarter than me uh, because he's a neurosurgeon. And let's be honest, he's probably smarter than most of us in this room, right? And brilliant mind, very humble, incredibly articulate thinker. And what really amazed me about this guy is like not just what he does in his secular vocation. Uh, the Lord has also given him this ministry where he actually travels to universities where he lectures on the compatibility of neuroscience with the Christian faith. And so, man, we just loved getting to know him and, and hearing his story. And so that night we were sitting at dinner, and I just happened to be sitting across the table from him, and, and I said, brother, I've just been so encouraged by our time together today. I mean, the Lord has just gifted you with this brilliant mind, but you're not just using that for your vocation. You, you are stewarding that to the glory of God for the advancement of his kingdom. And, and I said, I, I would just love, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear your story. How did you come to faith in Christ, and how did you get to this point? And so he goes on to tell us his conversion story, how he came to faith in Jesus. Um, he, he said he, his whole life he was a theist. He believed that there was a God. He believed that that God loved him, but did not grow up at all in a Christian home. Described his dad as kind of a Richard Dawkins type, and so faith really didn't have a place in their home in any way, but believed in God, believed that God loved him. And when he was in college, he was once invited to a worship service, and just decided to kind of go on a whim. And he said, honestly, the whole thing was not at all for me. He said that, you know, there's like lights and loud music, and and, and everybody was just really emotional. None of it was really for me, wasn't into it at all. Uh, But where everything really changed for him was when it came time for the sermon. And the person preaching that night, whenever he got up, the first thing he did, he opened up to Matthew chapter 5, and then for the next several minutes, he read verse for verse the entire sermon on the Mount. And his story, his, his testimony just, just really fascinated me because it wasn't the, the loud music that drew him in, it wasn't the lights, it, it wasn't all the emotion and the energy of, of the moment. In fact, he said, you know, he said, I don't even really believe, know or remember uh, if, if there was like a message that went along with it. He said, all I know is this. As he heard the Sermon on the Mount, he said, all I know is this. When I heard those words, the word of God entered me and rearranged me. Listening to the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we saw in week one of this series, going all the way back to June of last year, that the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount isn't actually found in Matthew 5 through 7. It's found in Matthew four seventeen, just a few verses before. That's where we're told in Matthew 4 that Jesus began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount describes a person who has repented. It describes what a true Christian looks like if we've truly responded to the gospel message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the totality of Christ's message. Everything that he did and everything that he preached was undergirded by the gospel of repentance in light of the imminence of the kingdom. This is what Jesus preached. And we saw in week one of that series that the Sermon on the Mount was Christ's radical confrontation with a wildly disoriented world. And this brother's testimony is such a powerful illustration of repentance because repentance in many ways really is rearrangement. As followers of Jesus, when we have responded to the gospel, we no longer arrange our lives around the beliefs and the behaviors and the thought processes and the patterns and the desires of this world. Our lives have been rearranged as we've responded to the authority of God's word and the power of the gospel You know, many of us have probably sang the words many times, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. How many of us have sung those words at some point in time in your time in the church? Many of us, probably all of us, have sung those words, but I wonder how many of us have really grappled with the question of how do we stand on Christ the solid rock? We know that Christ is the solid rock on which we stand, but how do we actually stand on him? That's the question that Jesus answers for us in the last few verses of the sermon on the mount, What Jesus shows us in verses 24 through 29 is that we're called to build our lives on the foundation of hearing and doing his word. Christ is the solid rock on which we stand, and the way we stand on him is to hear what his word says and then to do what his word says. And in his final illustration, we see a picture of two men. Both of them hear the word, but only one of them had a life that was rearranged. We find in these verses great encouragement for those who hear the words of Christ and do them. We find a sobering warning for those who don't. So for Matthew 7, let's read again verses 24 and 25. Here are the words of Jesus. He says, everyone then who hears, everybody say hear. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Everyone say does We'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Christ calls us to build our lives on the foundation of hearing and doing his word. And he calls us to do this first because his word is eternally indestructible. This is what Jesus shows us. Verse 24, he says, everyone then. So this then that's here is kind of like a therefore. It's a continuation of what we looked at last week where Jesus warned in verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We saw the warning from Jesus last week. He warned that there will be many on the day of judgment who, in their own estimation, have been sincere enough in their profession of faith, and they have enough powerful works to accompany them that they'll be granted access to the kingdom of heaven." And to be sure, we saw last week, true converts will make a profession of faith, and that profession of faith will be substantiated by a life of good works in response to the gospel. But Jesus warns, it is not the sincerity of your profession or, or the power of your good works that's going to save you. Christ alone saves us. False converts are looking to themselves. True converts are looking only to Christ. We've seen it for six months. It is the poor in spirit, not the proud in spirit, who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So in light of this, Jesus, in verse 24, he says, everyone then. In in light of that warning, everyone then, pay attention, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Everybody say mine, It's imperfect English, so we don't translate it this way, but these words can more literally translate, whoever hears me, these words, and does them. For six months, we've studied these three chapters, and since Matthew 5, 3, the only voice we have heard is the voice of Jesus Christ. The first two verses of the Sermon on the Mount set the scene, and then for the next 109 verses, we get only the voice of Jesus. Whoever hears these words of mine, these are his words. These aren't the words of a prophet. These aren't the opinions of a scribe. They're not the personal reflections of a famous rabbi. They're the very words of Jesus, which means they're the very words of God. And here's why I emphasize this. I fear for so many of us, we've kind of gotten to a place, our relationship with the Bible is that we, we've basically academized it. And instead of seeing the Bible as a voice to be heard, we basically just see it as another book to be read. The Bible's not just a book to be read. It's a voice to be heard. Whenever you hear these words of mine, Jesus says, when we hear the word, we're not just hearing the word, church, we're hearing him. That This is how he speaks to us. I think it's one of the greatest failures of modern Christians is that we have a tendency to talk about hearing God's voice as if it's some sort of mystical experience that can only be known by a few. And this isn't the case. We can all hear the voice of God because God has given all of us His word. Many have said it before, but I'm just going to say it one more time again today. If you want to hear God's voice, read your Bible. You say, I want to read it. I want to hear his voice audibly. Okay, read it out loud. (laughs) Bible on CD, A-tracks, vinyl, something. This is the voice of God. When we hear his word, we don't just hear his word. We hear him. We hear him. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them. The word here that Jesus uses in Matthew 13 is the, the term akuo, from which we get our word acoustic. He uses the same word in Matthew chapter 13, where he tells the parable of the soils. A sower goes out to, to sow seed, and he scatters it on various different types of soils. And there's only one type of seed that bore fruit, and it was the seed that landed on good soil. It had to have deep roots. It was buried into the ground. And because it landed on good soil, it bore fruit. And so, so that is the evidence that we have truly heard the word, not just that we've received the seed of the word, but that it's actually bearing fruit in our lives. Jesus says in Matthew 7, it's only those who have heard His word and are doing His word, who are building his life, their lives upon the rock. James says it like this in James 1:22. He says, "But be doers." Everyone say, "Doers. Be doers of the word. Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't miss that. There is great deception in being someone who hears the word and knows the word if we're not doing the word. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Hear the words of Jesus and hear the word of the Lord through James. If we hear the word, but we don't do the word, church, we're deceiving ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. I want to go back to the opening story and to just ask you again, just in light of this brother's testimony has the word of God not just entered you, has it rearranged you? Have you really heard the word? The evidence that we've truly heard the word is that we're doing the word. The evidence that we have received the seed of the gospel is that it's bearing fruit in our lives. For many of us, the word has entered. We've heard it, but it hasn't rearranged us, so we're not doing it. Christ doesn't call us to build our lives on the foundation of hearing or doing the word. He calls us to build our lives on the foundation of hearing and doing the word. This is the only foundation that lasts. When Jesus says in verse 24, whoever hears these words, he's talking about the totality of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters five through seven. And so, again, I just ask you if you profess to be a follower of Christ, you read these three chapters of the Bible, is this what your life looks like? This will be the natural overflow of the person who has repented and turned to Christ. This is the fruit of repentance. And so, I just ask you this morning, recapping six months, are you poor in spirit? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And are you willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Do you desire to be salt and light in a corrupt and dark world? Are you fighting against the sin in your life? Are you fighting against anger and against lust? Are you guarding and protecting and preserving your marriage? Are we doing these things? Are we seeking the Lord and praying and, and giving and in fasting? Are you storing up treasures on earth? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven? Are we doing these things? We've heard these things, but is it actually bearing fruit in our lives? It's one thing to have heard these things Jesus presses us into doing, As we saw last week, it's not doing good works that saves us. But when we are truly saved, these are the things we will be doing. This is the fruit that will be evident in our lives. When we've gone beyond hearing these words to actually doing them, this is where you and I can have confidence that we are building our lives upon the rock. When the natural overflow of our life is what we see in these three chapters, we can be confident we're building our lives on the rock because his word is indestructible. Jesus will go on to say in Matthew twenty four, thirty-five, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The prophet Isaiah said it like this, Isaiah forty eight, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand for how long? Forever. You know, at the end of our time together today, uh, I'm going to give us some facility progress updates, and you'll be able to see some, some updated pictures of the building and the project site. And, you know, most of this property, if you don't know, was, was donated to us a few years ago, and that's how we were able to secure it. And that was a huge blessing to us. The trade-off was we had to do a good bit of work to actually build up the site to make sure uh, it was solid for whenever we did the project. And so, man, if only it were as easy as, you know, mowing the grass and throwing up a metal building, right? It's not, not quite that simple. And especially here in the low country, because here in the low country, uh, a lot of the property, especially if it's left over right now, is low, it's low to the ground. But even, even at that, it's, it's not as simple as, as building it up. You know, we had to cut out a couple feet of bad soils and replace it with good soils. And then we dig two large retention ponds, and there's this, this big drainage infrastructure to make sure every time we have rainy days like today, the, the site properly drains the way that it needs to. It's a unique design, if you've not seen it. It's, it's built kind of like a beach house. It's, uh, the whole building sits on 105 timber pilings. that go 50 to 60 feet into the ground. And why do we go to that depth? Because that's where you hit the rock. But we do all these things. But we do all these things. You know, I, I learned this through the, I had no idea about this. It's been really interesting just for me to, to kind of be the fly on the wall and learn. Let's listen to engineers talk. Maybe you knew this. I, I didn't. Is here on the coast, we actually have a lot more seismic activity than most of us are aware of. And so it's not just being prepared for wind and for rain. When you build a building here in the low country, you have to build it for the potential, it's the possible, it's rare but possible event of an earthquake taking place during a hurricane. Whose anxiety just like skyrocketed here and they're like, <laughs> I don't need that. Leave it in Beaufort today. Like it's very, very rare, but it, man, it's, it's a possibility. It, it is a, it's a, like a one-a-million type thing, but it is a possibility. So we have to build with this in mind. So see, why do we do all this work? Why do all of this work of of digging out bad soils and driving down deep, besides the obvious answer that we've got to meet code, but we do all of this work because we know here in the low country, listen, storms are coming, and it's foolish to build a house on sand. We know these things. We know this. But listen, according to Jesus, even more certain than the possibility of an earthquake taking place during a hurricane is the absolute certainty that every single one of us is gonna stand before him in judgment. And he warns us so we'll be prepared for that day. The only people who are going to stand on that day are those who have built their lives on the rock of Jesus Christ, and they are standing on him by hearing and doing his word, because his word's eternally indestructible. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus gives us an opposite picture here. He says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So now we get the opposite picture. It will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We build our lives on the rock of hearing and doing the word of Christ because his word is eternally indestructible and in second, Jesus shows us that his word is absolutely irreplaceable. There is no substitute for his word. There's no artificial cheap substitute that we can replace with the Word of God. So again, it's really similar language we see in these two verses. It's almost an exact mirror of what we saw in verses 24 and 25, except at this point in time, we don't get the illustration of the wise man who built his house on the rock. We get the illustration of the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, I'm just curious, how many Sunday school graduates in the room have already been humming the song in your head for like the last 15, 20 minutes this morning? So, so just no shame here. We're just going to do this together this morning, Okay. The wise man and the foolish man. How's how's the song go? What's the wise man do? Wise man, you're going to do it with me. Come on. What's he do? Wise man builds his house upon the rock, right? Wise man builds his house upon the rock. Wise man builds his house upon the rock. Then what happens? Then the rains came tumbling down. I know somebody's like, Christians are so weird. Like, my friend invited me. They said you weren't weird, but you were a little weird. Just be honest. Rains come tumbling down. Then what happens? Rains Rains come down, the floods go up. And the rains come down, the floods go up. And the rains come down, the floods go up. But what happens to the house on the rock? stands firm. Okay, verse 2. Verse 2. Should have kept that worship team out here, right? Verse 2. By the foolish man, what's he do? Foolish man, where's he build? Builds his house upon the sand. Foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Then what happens? Rains come tumbling down. What's? Rains come down, floods go up. Rains come down, floods go up. Rains come down, floods go up. What happens to the house of the foolish man? Splat. It's silly, right? Like, we, we learn this as kids, but it's actually a pretty clear and vivid illustration of what Jesus says is the difference. One stands firm, the other goes splat. If you've been paying really close attention these last four sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has really moved away from giving new instruction to now providing warnings of destruction. We get three chapters of Jesus really giving us teaching and us just, just kind of digesting it. And in the last four sections of the Sermon on the Mount, he moves to warnings of what will happen if we don't listen to what he said. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus said there were two gates. There's a wide gate that leads to destruction. Many go through that one. He says there's a narrow gate that leads to life, and few go through it. Then in verses 15 through 20, there was the warning of false prophets those who are leading people astray on the path of destruction. And he warns that those false prophets themselves will be eventually destroyed. And then in verses 21 through 23, we saw the warning of false conversion. Those who have not put their trust in Christ, they've put their trust in their religious sincerity. They put their trust in their religious works. He will look at this crowd and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so this has been the progression. We had two gates, white and narrow, and then two prophets, true and false, and true professions, the genuine and the fake. And now we move to two houses, one built on rock and one built on sand. And each of these sections closes with the sobering warning of judgment. the language that Jesus uses of rain and floods and winds, it's a call back to the warnings of the Old Testament prophets. They often talked of God's judgment in language of the fury of a storm. Ezekiel 13 in particular, the Lord spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to the people of Israel. It's a really similar message that we touched on briefly a couple of weeks ago that the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah. Instead of honestly dealing with their sins and rebellion against the Lord, the people doubled down on their rebellion under the deception of the false prophets who led them astray. Instead of rebuking the people for their sins and calling them back to the covenant as they should have done, the prophets told them that they were under perfect peace and no threat of judgment. And this is the picture that we see, the language Ezekiel uses to describe God's wrath that illuminates what Jesus says in Matthew 7. The Lord speaks to the prophet Ezekiel 13, "'Therefore, thus says the Lord God, "'I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, "'and there shall be a deluge of rain and my anger and great hailstones "'and wrath to make a full end, "'and I will break down the wall "'that you have smeared with whitewash "'and bring it down to the ground "'so that its foundation will be laid bare.'" When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. The false prophets ignored the warning. That's what made them false prophets. They were not willing to challenge the people on their sin and call them back to the covenant as they should. In some ways, they actually pointed to God's love. You're his chosen. You're his children. He would never allow you to be conquered. He would never allow you to be abandoned. He would never allow you to be led astray and carried off into exile. And yet that's exactly what happened because they ignored the warnings that came from the Lord. Jesus said in verses 24 and 25, it's those who not only hear the word, but do the word, who are building their houses on the rock. It's not just hearing it and knowing what it says. The evidence that we've heard it and we know it is we respond to what it says. And listen, our problem today, it's it's really similar to the problem that was being engaged by the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The problem we have among professing Christians today not only is a low tolerance for doing the word, in modern Christianity, we have a, we have a big issue right now with just hearing the word. There's no one to hear what it says. But we have an extremely low tolerance as a generation for the full counsel of God's word. We have millions of professing Christians all across this country today. Listen, many in this very community today, they are listening to the words of false prophets who are crying, peace, peace, when there is no Peace. We're forsaking the full counsel of God's word. So much modern Christianity, so much of modern preaching has been so marked by just this this one-sided kind of pseudo gospel that allows people to remain comfortable in their sins and removes any warning of coming judgment. When you look at the modern church today, the British are coming, but Paul Revere has chosen to sleep in. Instead of issuing the warning as the Lord has instructed us to, so many pastors and prophets have forsaken this responsibility. We're a generation that is absolutely inundated with pseudo-gospels that have led countless millions to forsake the rock of hearing and doing for the sinking sands of avoiding and ignoring. We don't want to hear the words of Jesus, so we just ignore them. Don't wanna hear about God's holiness and his righteousness. We don't wanna hear about his justice and his wrath. We don't wanna hear about sin and our need for a savior. We want to, don't wanna hear calls to repent and warnings about hell. And so what happens is we proclaim a pseudo gospel that emphasizes God's love at the expense of God's truth. It's a cancer in the church today. And listen, I'm pressing into this because this is where I fear maybe even some of you are this morning. You're willing to worship the Jesus of verses 24 and 25, but you don't want the Jesus of verses 26 and 27. We're willing to hear that your house will prosper if you build it on the rock, but we're not willing to hear of the warning of what happens if we don't. And as Paul and Jesus had both warned what happened, many today have just surrounded themselves with pastors and teachers who will tickle their ears with the version of Jesus that they've invented. The false prophets of the 21st century, that this is one of the clearest distinguishing marks, they will never warn you of what happens if you build your house on the sand. They'll preach verses 24 and 25, but not verses 26 and 27. They'll cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And one of the ways you can tell is that the message is just cloaked in self-affirming language. It'll sound a lot like this. God's not angry at you. You are enough. God loves you just the way you are. You don't need to deal with your sin or be told that you're a sinner. In fact, that's how God made you. And he loves you just the way you are. The message will warm our hearts, it will prey on our emotions, it will leave us unconcerned. But make no mistake, Jesus shows us here, if we ignore his warnings, if we ignore the full counsel of God's word, we are building our house on sand, and Jesus himself warns the tide of his wrath will one day come in. We can avoid it, we can ignore it, we can pretend it's not there, the tide will eventually come in. Now, because we are in a cultural moment where we're so oversensitive to these things, you know, inevitably, anytime we step into these waters, it, it, it kind of starts to come with these, these charges of like, well, this is, this is fear-mongering, this kind of sounds fire and brimstone. And, and listen, my, my pushback to that is always really simple. It, it's not fear-mongering and hellfire and brimstone to just read the words of Jesus. These are his words. Verses 26 and 27 are his warning just as much as verses 24 and 25 are his encouragement. D.A. Carson, I think, has a really good reflection here. We need to see this this morning because I think some of us have such a shallow definition of love that we don't recognize sometimes loving someone means instilling a sense of healthy fear. Listen to this example from D.A. Carson. He says, "'If you're sleeping soundly in a house, desperately threatened by rising floodwaters, you may thank me for pounding at your door to rouse you. At the very least, you're not likely to accuse me of frightening you into safety.'" "'Frighten you I shall, affect your removal to a safe place I may attempt, "'but you would not accuse me of frightening you into safety.'" Similarly, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount by honestly attempting to frighten men and women into the kingdom, into salvation. You may not believe that a hell exists. In that case, you may dismiss Jesus as a liar or a fool. Alternatively, you may be so attached to your sin that even the threat of final and catastrophic judgment may not induce you to leave it. But you will be foolish indeed if you simply accuse Jesus of frightening you into the kingdom." Whether you accept the existence of hell will depend in large upon your total estimate of the person and ministry of Jesus. If you can dismiss him, pay attention to this, if you can dismiss him, you will have little difficulty dismissing hell. If you claim to follow him, then you cannot with integrity do so in a subjective way, which avoids the inconvenient and unpleasant. Church, here's the lie that I fear many of you have bought today. And and some with the very best of intentions, but a lie that you've bought nonetheless. Many of us genuinely believe we best love people by not warning them. Many of us genuinely believe the best way to love people is to ignore the warnings of judgment and any talk of sin that would make others uncomfortable. And and listen, this is an entirely different sermon for an entirely different day. But man, there's an entire movement of progressive thought today, progressive uh, Christians who, who would think in this way and have it say this way. They would listen to the words of Jesus there. They would tell me, someone like me, hey, don't even read that. They would say to do that is spiritual abuse because it causes feelings of fear and anxiety. And again, different sermon, different day. This is the danger of what happens when you try to baptize your faith in the language of secular therapeutics. What you'll end up doing is, is discounting and, and, and rejecting basically entire portions of the word of God on the grounds that it's not safe for you. And listen, Jesus does not tell us these things because he hates us. He's telling us this because he loves us. In the same way you would love your child by screaming at them if you saw a car coming while they were playing in the road. Nobody's gonna accuse you of frightening them into safety, of fear mongering. They'd call you unloving if you didn't. And this is what he's doing for us here. He's is issuing the warning. He says, Those who hear my words but do not do it, they will fall, and the fall will be great. You know, part of what makes the sinking of the Titanic so infamous hundred years later, it's it's not just the size of the ship and the number of people that died. Part of what makes the sinking of the Titanic so infamous was the pride and the warnings that were ignored. They knew what was coming. They knew what was out there, but just pure pride and hubris and arrogance, they said, we're pushing ahead. That's why Jesus says the fall of the foolish man is so great. Listen, he heard the word just the same way the wise man did. They heard the same message. Heard the same words, heard the same warning. What made him foolish is he chose to do nothing about it. And I just worry that many of us are like that second man. Goodness, you've heard it a million times. You know the warnings. You've got them memorized. But instead of turning, instead of listening to the warnings, instead of responding in repentance, you go full steam ahead into the iceberg of your own destruction. Jesus says if we hear his word and we don't do it, our fall will be great. Our fall will Will be great. The only people who are going to endure on the day of judgment are those who have stood on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, who have heard his word and who have done what it says. And so more specifically, here's what that means for our church culture today. And please don't miss this. Here's what that means for us today. The easy believism that has marked so much of the last 30, 40 years of evangelism, the easy believism of pray this prayer and you're in heaven, friend, that is sinking sand. Jesus warns us in this that the works-based legalism of of, I'm just gonna check the box and kind of maintain an outer religious appearance, goodness, we've seen it for six months, right? That is definitely sinking sand. We see this increasingly prevalent, the progressive liberalism that denies the authority of Christ, denies the authority of his word, says it doesn't have any binding on your life, it's sinking sand. Cheap grace that tells you you can have Christ and keep your sin is sinking sand. A pseudo-gospel that emphasizes God's love at the expense of God's wrath is sinking sand. Don't ignore the warning of Jesus. We cannot trade stone for sand. We cannot trade stone for sand. His word is absolutely irreplaceable. There's no other substitute that we can put in place that's going to be sufficient. So when we get to verse 28, Jesus has he's come to the end of, of this manifesto. He's come to the end of it all. And in three chapters of scripture, he's completely turned the entire world on its head. He's flipped the whole religious paradigm upside down, and this is the effect of his teaching. Here's how it closes, verses 28 and 29. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. Everybody say astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. And why were they astonished? Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Everybody say authority, and not as their scribes. Christ calls us to build our lives on the foundation of hearing and doing his word. He calls us to do this because his word is eternally indestructible. He calls us to do this because his word is absolutely irreplaceable. And third, he calls us to do this because his word is undeniably influential. Last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount, we just said these words together. We see two distinguishing marks of the teaching of Jesus. And I want to make sure that we don't miss either one of these because both of them go hand in hand. And so, first, we see the response of the crowd. First mark of Christ's teaching, we see that it is astonishing. It's astonishing. The word that's used here really just gives the sense that the crowd was utterly dumbfounded by everything that they just heard. They I mean, were just beside themselves, had absolutely no idea what to do, how to process what they had just seen and what they heard. They're, they're speechless just utterly spellbound and mesmerized by the way that Jesus had just taught them. In just over 100 verses, Jesus has flipped centuries of religious misconceptions on their heads, and he's declared an entirely new way. This, this past week I saw, uh, you've probably seen videos like this before, and I saw one of these videos this past week, and they're always always exciting to see. You know, There's this guy who's in his, I think, 50s or 60s probably, and he'd spent his entire life colorblind. And it's one of those videos where someone was giving him a pair of glasses that was gonna allow him to see in color for the first time. And so he puts them on, and, and what's the response? He says, No words. He's he's kind of laughing, but he's kind of crying, he's choked up, like he, he can't even come up with the words to describe what he's seeing. He had spent his whole life seeing, but he had not really seen. And suddenly his eyes were opened up to this entirely new world that he did not even know existed. I mean, just solid nerd reference here, like he just just got unplugged from the matrix, right? Whoa. I mean, this has utterly blown his mind, and that's the response of the crowd this day. That They're just utterly astounded and dumbfounded by what Jesus has said. The word had not just entered them, it rearranged them, and they didn't really know how to respond except to be speechless and astonished. And why was this? The first mark is that his teaching is astonishing. The reason for this is because his teaching is also authoritative. It says they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes and Pharisees. This word authority is a really important word all throughout Matthew's gospel. It's a word that that emphasizes all the privileges of kingship. We saw this several weeks back in chapter five, when Jesus opened up his mouth, he had a series of statements where he would start out by saying, you have heard it was said. And so he would talk about the common religious teaching of his day, the popular teaching of his day, but then he would piggyback that with, but I say to you. He would quote himself, he's quoting his, his own authority, speaking of his own authority. He says they taught him as one who had authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. Now, how did the scribes and Pharisees teach? Well, all the scribes and Pharisees did was quote other scribes and Pharisees. They had replaced the word of God with the opinions and the interpretations and the observations of man and because of all this their teaching lacked in any sort of real substance or authority. And Jesus spoke as one who had authority. When he opened his mouth, he quoted no other authority. If Jesus wrote a research paper on the Bible, the bibliography page would just say me. He's the authority. No commentaries, no concordances, no cross-references, nothing. No Bible atlas, nothing. He's the authority. When he opened his mouth, he was the authority. He didn't just speak the word, he is the word incarnate. And here's how that translates for you and I today. The Lord has extended that authority to, to pastors, to prophets, to teachers, to those who teach his word. But here's what that means for us. What it means for us is that my word as a pastor is only as authoritative as it is rooted in the word of God. And and this is what I think is missing in in so much modern Christian preaching and teaching today. This is a, a real concern that I have, and I think it's especially become common over the last 10 years, is that for so many of us, we know what everybody else has to say about the Bible, but we ourselves don't really know what the Bible says, we kind of live in this information age, right? Like, the issue isn't that we don't know what the famous Christian authors have to say. We do know what they have to say. We know what the celebrity pastors have to say. We know what our favorite podcaster has to say. We know what our favorite book has to say. We know what the conference speakers have to say. We know what everybody has to say about the Bible. The question is, do we know what the Bible says? That these things are not one and the same. And I want to stress this because I think if there's one thing that's lacking, the reason why we're so lacking in worship even in our churches today is because we're no longer astonished by the authority of the word of God. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we are so lacking in astonishment in our worship is because we lack authority in our preaching. Instead of hearing the word of God, we're only hearing the word of man. And listen, don't get me wrong. Like, Like things are said authoritatively all the time. And people will quote others to to substantiate that authority, but if your convictions are only rooted in what others have said about God's word and not what God's word actually says, it's going to lack authority. There's a massive difference between knowing what the Bible actually says and only knowing what others have said about the Bible. And again, I've I've done it this morning, but most weeks I'm going to draw from the reflections of one or two others. I'm going to draw from the reflections of other faithful Bible teachers and those who can maybe shine some more light on a text than maybe I could do myself. It's always helpful for me to to study and prepare and then kind of check my observations and conclusions against the work of of others. But I hope you understand the foundational message of this church or any church should never be, thus says D.A. Carson. Thus says John Piper, thus says Charles Spurgeon, thus says Tim Keller, thus says Taylor Burgess. That should never be the foundational message of the church. The foundational message of the church should always be, thus says the Lord. That's where the authority lies. Our authority is only as deep as it is rooted in what Christ has said in his word. Here's my prayer for our church family as we move forward from this series, and I think from these last three or four, four weeks in particular, this is, this is my desire. I was praying this just, just sitting in, in my office at home this morning and, and preparing. This is my prayer for us. I want it to be able to be said of our church family. Those are people who have been astonished by the authority of the word of God. They haven't just heard it. They've heard it that they've heard it and they're doing what it says, that they're building their lives on the foundation. They're building that church on the foundation of hearing the word of God. I want it to be said of us that we've just been undone by the word, that we're spellbound and mesmerized and dumbfounded, that when we heard it, we didn't just hear it, we went and did it, and we did it joyfully. And so as we close out today, I want to give us two very, very simple challenges based on the words of Jesus and the response Of the crowd. I'm going to give you both of these at once. Two challenges for us as we close this morning. The first challenge is for us to believe. And the second challenge is for us to behold. First challenge is to believe. We hear the words of Christ and we obey what he has said. Jesus calls us to build our lives on the foundation of hearing and doing his word. So I just want to ask you this morning how are you hearing his word? Now I mean beyond a sermon today. Like, how are you hearing his word? How are you seeking and reading his word daily? Are, are you reading it? Are you immersing yourself in it? Are you studying it? Are you memorizing it? Are you meditating on what it says? Are you discussing it with other believers? How are you hearing the voice of God in his word? To hear his word is to hear him. If you're not in his word, you're not going to hear him. Are you hearing his word? But more than hearing his word, are you doing his word? But we've seen it today from Jesus. Hearing the word is not enough. The evidence that we've heard the word is that we're doing the word. We're responding to what it says. And Jesus gives us great confidence here. If you've built your life on that foundation, if, if you're, you're living out the Sermon on the Mount, you'd say, this is my life. I'm not perfectly righteous, but man, I'm hungering and thirsting for it. If that's you, Jesus is showing us, have confidence. You are building your life on the word. But beyond believing his word, I want to ask you this morning, are you still beholding his word? Christian, let, let me just gently nudge on, on this this morning. Does the word of God still wow you? Does it still stir your affections? Does it still move your, your emotions? I mean, are you, are you still just, just dumbfounded sometimes when you open up those pages and you see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ through what's there? I didn't have time to share this in, in the first service, but I, I wrapped up uh, studying for this message this past Wednesday morning. I studied from home usually through the course of the week, and, and I don't know what it was. I think it was just you know, six months of studying this, and I really hadn't slept great the night before, and, and so maybe that was part of it too, but Emily was, was sitting at our kitchen island uh, at our house. She was eating lunch, and I came out and, and really was just kind of out of breath. I mean, I just felt just, just so blown away by, by what the Lord was, was showing me in his word, and my heart was just so stirred for the word, and she said, how'd it go? And I don't know what happened. I, I literally just broke down and cried. I just told her, I, just, I was like, it's just too good. It's just too good. There's just too much here, and it's just too good that the Lord shows us this truth, and it's too good that I get to share with people. This is overwhelming that moment. I just want to ask you, are you still moved by the word of God? Does it still move you? Maybe what you need more than anything is just to go home today and open up your Bible to, to John 1 or to, to John 3, or maybe just right back to the Sermon on the Mount, and just to get on your face before God and ask him to move you again to capture your heart again, that you would behold his beauty and his glory and his majesty and his word. He calls us to believe, and as we believe, we continue to behold. Um, six years ago this morning, six years ago this morning, January twenty second, 2017, um, I woke up and drove to Buford High School around 5.30 in the morning because we were preparing to have our very first public worship gatherings for Cross Community Church. And I uh, asked the first service as well, who was there that very first Sunday um, six years ago. Man, it's awesome. We had a lot of people in the first service, too. And uh, you'll remember that day. Uh, it was pouring rain, okay? So fitting that we've had some rain this morning. I actually wore this same blazer on that day. That's why I grabbed it this morning. And um, it was $38 on clearance two weeks before we launched the church. I'd like to think because of inflation, it's worth like $47 now. So maybe I'll try to, to swap this thing out uh, sometime soon. And, and so, so at least those two things have not changed. Now, lots of other things have changed, Uh, We're not at Beaufort High School, obviously, anymore, and and the dynamics of our church have changed, and and a lot of things have changed. Those two things haven't changed, but there's a third thing that I also hope hasn't changed. It was a chaotic morning that day, heavy rain and lightning. Parking team was out there in full rain gear, escorting people into the building through like three inches of rain. The sermon text that day that I chose was Acts 3, 1 through 10. And um, what that passage is, it's a story of, of Peter and John and they're walking, and, and there's a man who can't walk, and, and they pass by him, and, and they, they call out to him, and, and he's asking them for alms. And, and the focus that day was on their response to him. They looked at him, and they said, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And, and we chose that passage. I chose that passage for our launch Sunday because I wanted to plant the flag in the ground on day one. We are not going to be built on silver and gold silver and gold we do not have. We wanted to plant the flag in the ground and say, "By God's grace, we want to see this congregation be built on the rock of seeing and hearing the word of God. We believe that the word of God is sufficient for the building of his church." And and listen, at the time that was a little bit of theory for us. And if I'm being honest with you, for 2 years we got nothing but pushback. Nobody wants to hear expository preaching. It's so boring, that's not gonna win people, that's not what people want. And and listen, I'll just flat out say it now, if you're bored by the word of God, it's probably because you're not saved. And so we pretty quickly dismiss those opinions. This isn't theory for us anymore. I look at this six years later and I'm like, the word has been enough. It's been enough. Through every transition, through every challenge, through every moment, through every single season, the word of God has been enough. Silver and gold has never been enough, but the word of God has always been enough. So it was enough when we were at Buford High School. Who remembers the summer of 2018 at Islands Academy? Who survived that? Guys, it was so hot in that gym, people were literally passing out and paramedics were coming. We suffered through that, and then we moved to the Y at the end of 2018. It's been enough since we've been here, and then it was enough while we had to sit at home for a few weeks when COVID got started, and nobody knew what was going on, and it was enough when we finally reopened the building but could only have a certain number of people in here at a time and had to have, like, three worship services to accommodate everybody. It was enough then. It's, it's always been enough. It was enough through the divisiveness of multiple election seasons, It has been enough through the divisiveness of COVID. When churches split over the ridiculousness of masks, we said nonsense, we're preaching the gospel. It's been enough through political division. It's been enough through racial tension. It has been enough, man, as as so much of the church has absolutely sold its soul to the rising secular ideologies and progressive liberalism of our day and have rightly gone to their grave because of it, it has been enough here for God to build his church. The word of God has been enough. It's been enough through every season up to this point. It's gonna be enough in our next season at Shell Point. It's gonna continue to be enough. This isn't theory for us anymore. We're not gonna make it because we have been impressive and because we have good strategies and because we've got a good plan and we've got a good vision. That's not the reason we're gonna make it. We're gonna make it because we haven't been built on sinking sand Cross Community Church is gonna make it because we have been built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ in hearing and doing his word. Our foundation has been laid. It has been tested by storms and by God's grace six years later, we're still standing on the rock. So happy sixth birthday, Cross Community Church. We get to celebrate uh, God's grace and kindness to us in uh, giving us another year. Let's pray. Fathers, we come uh, to the table this morning As we prepare our hearts and minds, help us to examine ourselves that we would honestly evaluate where we're building our house. Help us to see the utter foolishness of building our house on anything other than the rock of Jesus Christ. The utter foolishness of building our lives on anything other than a foundation of hearing and doing your word. So, Father, where we have fallen out of step, will you draw us into repentance? For those who don't know you, would you today give the faith to believe? And for those of us who do believe, would you give us once again the joy to behold? So as we search our hearts, as we confess, as we repent, as we come to the table this morning, let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you. Be glorified in the prayer and response of your people. Let your word bear fruit in our hearts. Take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives as we leave today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen.